one year I kind of got an idea, you know, I almost tried trap. I like to trap, I like to make lure, and I like to write. Where can it go from here? I would be able to spend more time in the woods. I was losing money in the fish trapping, but I didn't care. Getting the traps out there is the hardest part, I think, with them. I would leave the critters in the back of my truck in the high school parking lot. We're going to set traps, like, no matter what. Some of these guys have trapped these areas for generations. We got through the fur boom. This is Northern Michigan. This is what you do. Trappers love game trappers in a positive light. I'm gonna ask you guys a question. Do you know everything? This will be fun. Trying to learn something from these legends. Ask questions without asking questions. Volumes of Perfect and Game magazine. The structure from Perigo Gorman. Herb Lennon's articles, the Herb Lennon ads to information, trapping radios. We are trappers and ourselves. To me, that's pretty important. Alright, everybody listening to me? Develop a system yet because we're working ahead of time to build big trapping. If you got very bullshit saying the judge, if you got bog trap. They start talking about these big fans. Most of my tunes are coming from up top, not down bottom. Probably the best part of the country in the world. I don't get any better. Trying to set predator trash and trash waders. The back of that beaver looks like a sheer. You better edit this part out. Yeah, it was better. Back in the fur shed. This is Trapping Today. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Jeremiah Wood. Great to be here. Great to have you here. We're brought to you by Cots Brothers Lures. K-A-A-T-C-B-R-O-S dot com. Trap smarter, work harder, enjoy the success that follows. Cotsbrooks has what you need to get started on the trap line. From traps and snares to a full selection of baits and lures, books, DVDs, all the parts and accessories you need for trapping. Check them out Cotsbrooks.com. On X Maps, use your phone as a GPS on the trap line, mark your trap locations, get landowner information, scout using the latest aerial imagery, and mark your tra- mark waypoints. And you can do so many different things with this Onyx app. Uh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to open access to all kinds of different tools. Go to onxmaps.com and use the code TRAP, T-R-A-P, for 20% off of your first purchase. You will not regret it. You can use the free trial and just check it out and see how often you end up using this thing. I use it way more than I ever thought I would, so it's a, it's a great tool. And Moyle Mink and Tanner, you get your fur tanned by the professionals. Moyle is a family-run operation out of Idaho. They do an incredible job. They are the standard, the industry standard when it comes to tanning fur. And in a low fur market, uh, tanning gives you an option to have your fur preserved for the long term. You don't have to send it off and get pennies on the dollar for your fur. You can can hang on to it, and whether you want to give give fur away as gifts have some wall hangers, preserve some of those first animals you catch, or uh, you want to get into the business of selling tanned fur items or, um, you know, making, you know, doing some sewing. Um, it all starts with getting that fur tan. So go to moyle.net, M-O-Y-L-E.net. Use their online customer portal to get your fur done quicker. And uh, contact them at info, I-N-F-O, at moyle.net, whether uh, you have questions about the process or you just want to thank them for supporting the podcast. All right, guys, tonight's episode is kind of exciting. So a uh, little update on my trap line. I'm uh, getting ready to check the Martin line for the second time tomorrow morning. I'll actually be out there all day tomorrow. Should be a pretty good day. The weather has been really warm, and it's made it difficult. I know the, you know the fur isn't moving as much as it probably should be. It's great that we're not all snowed in. We can drive pickup everywhere, but boy, it's uh, 
it has been a challenge to get animals to come to the traps. I did catch one Martin, uh, my first trap line run, so that was good, uh, but it was it was generally quite slow. So uh, we'll see tomorrow. I'm, I'm hoping to get two or three tomorrow. That'd be great. And of course, I'm going to make some more sets at the end of the day when I'm done checking traps. It's a long ways out there in the deep woods. And so, so you got to take advantage of the time you're out there. I'll have my uh, eight-year-old boy out there with me too. So it's going to be a fun day. It'll be, it'll be a pretty long day for him checking about oh, 55, 56 traps. And, uh, and then setting some more at the end of the day, but uh, it'll it'll get them into the swing of things. So tonight's episode, uh, I have Randy Zarnke with the Alaska Trappers Association. I was actually going to save this one for next week or the week after. I had something all prepared for this week, but I just enjoyed this interview with Randy so much. I just we recently did this interview, and I I I, I had so much fun, and I'm kind of biased toward Alaska trapping anyway. And so uh, I, I didn't want to wait another week to get this out. I wanted to get it out right away. So uh, I, I was able to shuffle some things around. And I'm going to play this tonight. So we talk about trapping in Alaska, how Randy got up there and got started, uh, what his trap line looks like. He runs a, a small snowshoe line outside of town. Uh, and then we get into the work that Randy has done with the Alaska Trappers Association, all of the projects that they have going on. And a couple of the things that really have fascinated me, and I think that you guys, a lot of you would be really interested in checking out, is their oral history project and the books that they have published. And uh, if you go to alaskatrappers.org, you can check these out. Uh, The oral history is really, really fascinating stuff. Randy uh, spent so much time putting together these interviews, sitting down with old-timer trappers, and a large percentage of those trappers have passed away since the interviews took place. So there's a lot of history there that that uh, they were able to capture uh, just in time. And, and it really is, you know, lifetimes lived up there in, in the bush in Alaska and, and experiences that people had that, that really are, are something else. So the oral histories are available for you to purchase as MP3 files. And what I've found is it, it's really neat to have those to listen to while I'm out running traps in the woods or I'm driving to and from the trap line. So I'll buy, you know, the last, the last round here, I think I bought 10 because if you buy, they're like, I think they're like two bucks a piece, something like that. They're not that expensive. And if you buy, uh, maybe two or $3, I can't remember, but if you buy a certain number of them, I think it's 10, you get a discount on them. And, and so, uh, that, that's really uh, a great way to all, all the proceeds for that go toward the Alaska Trappers Association and helps to defend trapping rights and promote trapping, which is good for all of us, whether you're in Alaska or not. Uh, we also talk about some of the books that Randy has published or helped publish uh, from other trappers in Alaska and talk about uh, for folks that are are have always dreamed about going to Alaska to trap maybe some advice and thoughts that he has uh, that he could share on how to get started and, and how to find a trap line, things like that. So I think you're going to enjoy this, whether you are an Alaska trapper or a Alaska dreamer like I am, or if you have absolutely no interest in ever going to Alaska, I still think you're going to find this to be pretty interesting. So uh, without further ado, let's get into the interview. Okay, Randy Zarnke. 
Fairbanks, Alaska area trapper and president of Alaska Trappers Association. Thanks for coming on the show. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, I'm sure we'll have fun. Yes. Um, it's always fun when you're talking trapping. Um, I, I'd love to get started by just kind of going into how you got started in trapping and, and what you what brought you to Alaska. Well, uh, I hope we got a couple hours and you got a lot of re- that's a long story, but I grew up in central Wisconsin, and uh, our family was definitely outdoor-oriented. Uh, we did a lot of fishing, uh, you know, a significant amount of hunting, but very little trapping. About the only trapping I can remember is my brother, uh, a couple years, uh, snared some rabbits, and my parents encouraged that. I thought that was pretty cool, and then later, many years later, I found that uh, one of the reasons they encouraged it was that um, it was another way to bring some uh, protein into the household. So uh, it wasn't all uh, just fun and games. Uh, we ate those rabbits. So, uh, But then I um, went to college and came out of uh, with a Ph.D. in wildlife ecology and veterinary science and looking for uh, jobs around the country. And I knew that there was one up here that would uh, suit me, and so I applied and was selected for that, moved up in 1978, and, um, you know, was uh, just enthralled at the opportunities for hunting and fishing and, um, you know, just started to take advantage of that kind of almost right away. Um, I hadn't trapped up till this point, um, didn't know hardly anything about it, but Several of my coworkers were trappers, and some of them pretty um, significant trap lines. Uh, and uh, every Monday morning, you know, they would run their traps on the weekend, and every Monday morning they would gather either in somebody's office or around the coffee pot or wherever it happened to be and trade stories. And I'd listen to that and, you know, found it fairly interesting. And then a couple of guys that uh, worked uh, worked together and trapped together invited me to go out on their line one weekend, and you know what happens there. I mean, I just uh, was immediately uh, fell in love with it, and uh, when I got back to town, uh, immediately started looking for a place to trap on my own. So you were hooked. That's kind of a long story of how I got into trapping. Um, and what was what was your position? You worked with fishing game. That's correct. Yeah, I was the uh, the wildlife disease coordinator. My training and, and experience was in uh, infectious and parasitic diseases, mostly infectious diseases. Yeah. But then kind of on the job, uh, learned the, the parasite side, and so uh, that's what I did for almost 24 years for the state. So how did it uh, work out uh, trying to find a trap line around the Fairbanks area? Because I imagine that a lot of that ground had already, was already being trapped. Yeah, um, the one difference, the one thing that I kind of had in my favor is at the time, uh, you know, I didn't have any money, so the idea of buying a snow machine uh, was out, uh, was not uh, in the, in the not very likely. Yeah. And so um, I was just looking for a small little place that I could do on foot uh, on snowshoes, and um, actually I found a place relatively close to town, and... Um, you know, I've, I've continued to trap that little spot for the last 41 years now. And uh, I've trapped elsewhere. I've, you know, some years I had two lines going, and uh, some years I am maybe even a little bit more than that. But I always had that one little spot going. And um, 
now that I'm quite a bit older, uh, that little spot suits me just perfect. And it probably helps keep you in shape. Oh, yeah. Yeah. In fact, um, uh, there was an article about me in the paper many years ago, and I talked about uh, that aspect very, very clearly that, um, you know, I go to the gym uh, several days a week, uh, but on the weekend that uh, my trap line probably gives me more exercise than I do get at the gym. <laughs> yeah. So uh, what what species do you pursue in that snowshoe trap line? Well, it started out, um, so this is back in like 1980, it started out strictly uh, mink and fox and stayed that way for several years. And then uh, kind of the late 80s, I started to notice a downturn in the fox population and couldn't really put a finger on it. I didn't understand it at the time. And then uh, within a, I, I kept seeing tracks, although not as many. And um, then um, over time, I started to catch a handful of coyotes. And, you know, you can probably guess what, what we finally concluded, and that is that coyotes started moving in and the foxes uh, either left or got eaten. Yep. And, and so, um, you know, then it kind of became mink and, and, uh, and coyotes. Um, and uh, then, uh, you know, I heard other trappers, more experienced trappers, talk about how the uh, when the lynx population surges, you know, they're just everywhere. There's one behind every bush. And, you know, I trapped here for probably close to 15 years without seeing a lynx track and figured maybe it was either a fable or it was, a, you know, <laughs> you know, I was probably never going to see lynx like that. And then uh, we had two peaks kind of in the late, late 90s and late, aughts and um and um you know i caught several links each time you know for about three or four years in a, in a row i'd catch uh, catch them quite a few of them and uh over the 40 odd years uh, i caught a grand total of five martins so this isn't one of the great martin lines in the world it's just on the other spectrum so yeah when i think um, of a, a foot line i usually think martin yeah yeah well i wish um you know i love <laughs> I'd love to have a whole closet full of Martin uh, waiting to go into a coat or something like that, but it's just never happened. And I've looked around a couple different times and places for a different spot. Um, but you know, all of the good, the really good Martin country, like you were saying earlier, that's already been claimed. Yeah. It, it, is it, um, is it because the lines are further from town or does it have to do with the tree cover in, in the Martin country or what, what is it that, that keeps Martin from your trap line? I think it's the fact that, you know, it's relatively close to town and, um, you know, that, that's my supposition, um, that, you know, they have to get through several other trap lines to get this close and somebody else catches them before they get here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you so do you use a lot you must use a lot of snares in your your line to save uh, from packing traps around or do you leave traps out out on the line uh, I always bring my stuff back in um, and, and clean it up and uh, you know boil it in the fall before I take it back out um, but I do use a lot of snares um, that just kind of I started out you know like everybody if you're gonna trap you got to do it with foothold traps right and um, yeah you know, I started out that way and then, um, you know, just gradually switched over to where I am um, use mostly uh, uh, snares now. 
I've got, um, you know, little conibears out for the mink, but um, for the uh, the fox and the coyotes and the lynx, um, you know, I use snares. And I use uh, some large footholds for uh, lynx cubby, cubbies when the uh, lynx are abundant. Yeah. Uh, do do your mink populations cycle much there, or do you have a pretty consistent number of mink on your line? Well, it's, uh, you know, it's kind of funny there, too. Uh, that's changed, and I just haven't figured that one out yet. But the, the first 10 or 12 or 15 years that I trapped there, it seemed like, you know, I'd catch a few one year and then nothing the next year, and then a few the third year and nothing the fourth year. And I think, I, in my mind, I was just kind of cleaning out a family group, and then they would move in, the, you know, a year later. But uh, the last few years, you know, I just haven't caught quite as many, so I don't know what's going on there. I haven't figured that one out. Yeah, I my trap trapping here in Maine, um, I, I set I used to set a lot more water just to try to catch mink, and and we really don't where I trap, we don't seem to have very many mink for some reason. But the old timers do talk about having, you know, you used to they used to run a lot of long lines and and hit every road crossing and and catch quite a few mink. And isn't it funny that with all of the people that are doing these activities and all the thought and time we put into it, there's still questions like that that, you know, we just kind of look at each other and shrug our shoulders and go, I don't know what's going on. Yeah, it definitely keeps it interesting because there's just so much so much to learn. Yep. So, um, so how did you get involved with the Alaska Trappers Association? Well, I started trapping in 1980, and um, gosh, I don't know, um, probably it was one of my coworkers that kind of taught me everything I know, and he was involved with uh, the Trappers Association, so he probably suggested it, and I went to a meeting and, you know, enjoyed the, um, you know, the what I learned about the how-to stuff, and enjoyed the company and the camaraderie of the group, and you know, for the first um, probably 15 years, that's about as far as it went. I just attended the meetings and and uh, enjoyed um, learning and being with like-minded people. Yep. And then you decided to get more involved later on? Yeah, and I can't quite remember how all that worked, but a friend of mine was the president in the kind of early 90s, and... Um, um, you know, I'm the kind of guy that if I see something that could be done better tomorrow than it's being done today, um, I just kind of try to, rather than suggest somebody else do it, I just do it myself. And so I, there were a couple of activities that I thought we could just do a little better job of. And, you know, I talked to my friend, the president, and he said, well, if you want to do them, just go. I just grew from there. And, you know, after I had done uh, you know, uh, activity A for a couple of years, that got better. And then I switched over and, you know, activity B for a few years, and that got better. And pretty soon people, uh, even though I wasn't on the board of directors, people started, um, you know, paying me, paying attention to what I had to say and that sort of thing. And, and after I retired from the department, uh, I felt more at, uh, at liberty to be on the board. And, and uh, then that role grew and you know eventually people just figured that i had to be president so i've been in that role for quite a while <laughs> how how long have you been president 
You know, I took a break uh, somewhere. We had one guy that did it for three years, but I think I've kind of been president from, oh, I don't know, I'm going to say like 2007 to 2010 and then 2014 till now, something like that. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it, it certainly, you guys do a lot. You you seem to be a very active association with all kinds of different projects uh, going on. You've got the, the books that you're publishing. Uh, you have obviously regular meetings. You, you even during during COVID, I, I sat in on a couple of the, the webinars that you guys did, uh, or the, I guess you call them virtual meetings. You've got uh, legislative activity, just just a ton of things going on, huh? Well, yeah, and you know that all grew very gradually. Um, you know, kind of in the way that I mentioned before. That you know, you uh, for me at least, I look at what we're doing, and and I thought, well, we could do a better job of whatever we we're talking about at the time. We could do a better job of that, and so we emphasized that for a couple of years, and we just kept shifting our focus and we've continued to grow and get better. Um, um, the, you, you mentioned the books and, um, you know, I started back in 1997 with what I called an oral history project where I recorded interviews in your age. It started strictly as trappers, but after a few years I realized, you know, there's a bunch of interesting people out there that, Maybe they're pilots or maybe they're hunters or maybe they're hunting guides that, you know, um, they've got great stories to tell, too. And um, I began to realize that uh, I needed to branch out and cover more of the state rather than just around the Fairbanks area. And so um, over the course of the last 25 years, I've reported... I lose track, but I think we're at about 197 or 198 of those interviews. And um, it's just, uh, it was a wonderful project. Uh, I just can't tell you how much I enjoyed doing it. With one or two exceptions, I walked out of those interviews with a big smile on my face and just saying, you know, gosh, I just can't believe I just spent two hours listening to all that great <laughs> outdoor. Yeah. Yeah. So friends within the association that knew I was doing this, um, almost from the start, they told me, well, you got to write a book. And I said, no, we're going to have these. We're going to offer these uh, initially. I mean, we offered them on cassette tape, and then we switched over to, uh, to um, audio CDs, and then we switched over to online recordings. And I said, you need to listen to these. Uh, listening to the people tell their own stories laughing at their own jokes and groaning at the, the mishaps that they had, that's that's much better than reading it in the book. And they'd all, you know, kind of smile and nod and say, but you are going to write a book, right? <laughs> so after 15 years of hearing that, I finally broke down, and I think it was in 2013 we put out a book. It's called Alaska Tracks, and what I did was try to pick the best three or four interviews from the different regions around the state and then put them all together. And one of the things that I like best about it is I, I left the, um, the, the interview in the words of the person speaking. You know, I, it wasn't me saying, and then Jeremiah went out and shot a moose and this, and, you know, it was in your own words. And I think that's really valuable here. So yes, in any of 
that was very popular book, and uh, you know we sold several thousand copies of those, and people really liked it. And um, um, then uh, about that same time, uh, a friend handed me script of a man that uh, come to Alaska in 1894, mostly looking for gold, but also you know building cabins and flooring and building boats and all, everything that kind of goes with that outdoor pioneer lifestyle. And, and it's just uh, an exceptionally well-written story. And so <clears throat> I ran that past our board of directors and they all gave a thumbs up. So we did that. And a couple of years later, we had another one from a bear hunting guide down in Kodiak. And most recently we've had one uh, from TV star from the mountain man program put together a book and that one's probably doing better than any of the others and one of the guys I used to work with at Fish and Game uh, just finished one and we'll have copies of that by the end of the year so it's uh, it's been really fun um, we haven't made as much money as we thought we would we've made some money off of it but more importantly we just have the belief we the board of directors have the belief that you know, these are great stories, and there are people all over the country and really probably all over the world that would love to read them. So if we can do this and make a, a, a buck here and there, you know, we owe it to the other outdoor enthusiasts in the world to spread these stories around. Well, guys like me are certainly appreciative of it, guys that, that uh, can't can't live out up there in Alaska for various reasons uh, or life just didn't, didn't send us that direction. And uh, it, it's just great to hear all these stories. It, it really is. Uh, it, it's the best substitute for not actually being there. And, and, and the other thing is a lot of those old timers, uh, since the time you, you started recording their oral histories, a lot of those old timers are gone now. Well, that's exactly right. You know, I was recording and recording and recording and not paying too much attention to, um, to uh, the, the details of everybody's life. But when it came time to put that book out, I thought, I need to add a little note at the end of the chapter for those people that have died. And I think out of the 30 people that are in the book, I think something like 14 or 15 of them had passed by the time the book came out. And, you know, for me personally, that just rammed home how important it was that, you know, you need to record these things when you can, because it isn't like you can go back, you know, after the person has passed and do it later. That's right. I thought the other interesting part of that was some of them were recorded uh, in front of a live audience as part of your ATA meetings. That's right. Yeah, for uh, several years there, probably almost 10 years, we would uh, call one of our meetings each year. We would refer to that as Old Timers Night. and We had people, uh, members of our organization, that didn't come to any of the other meetings uh, each year, but always came to Old Timers Night. <laughs> um, are you – so so – I have purchased some of those uh, oral histories. P anybody can get them at alaskatrappers.org uh, on the website. Um, but there are probably there are probably like I don't know fifty or sixty of them there on the website. But you said you did a lot more than that. Are there others that are potentially we could we could see in the future? Well, yes and no. Um, I would love to do more of that. Um, the recordings that you can download from our website now have been edited by me. And, um, you know, I didn't edit for to try to change content by any stretch, but I just tried to clear things up and 
you know, every once in a while you'd have somebody talk about, you know, some giant moose that he shot, and he, he was talking about it in the first five minutes of the interview, and then he'd come back, you know, 45 minutes later, and he said, oh, I forgot to tell you that I used my brother's <laughs> rifle. And so rather than leave that 45 minutes later, I would pick up that little bit and move it to the end of the five-minute segment. So once again, I didn't try to change content, but I just tried to clean things up a little bit. And, um, you know, that whole process is, doesn't happen in um, in an hour. Uh, I, what did I figure out? I figured for every minute of recording, I spend 20 minutes editing. Wow. Wow. So for a, a, a two-hour interview, I spend 40 hours editing it. And, um, you know, not to to uh you know cry on your shoulder but as i've been more and longer and longer in this position as president there's just more and more things to be done and um so to to dedicate you know 40 hours here and 40 hours there to edit down those audio recordings um that's not the highest priority for me these days i would love to have the time to do it I can envision a time in the future when I do have, uh, you know, my obligations to the association may not be as great that I could spend more time with those, but won't happen here in the near future. I think I I'd probably speak for a few other guys like me that would be more than happy to pay for some unedited co uh, versions of those, uh, uh, just uh, as a as a substitute for the you know the the perfectly cleaned up version. It'd just be great to hear more of that. Yeah, I hear you, and maybe that's maybe that'll be the the way that we get more of those out. It's probably it's good that you said that because that might be the, you know, the spur that I need to to get up off my bed butt and do it. Uh, maybe what what were maybe one of the one or two of the your favorite interviews, uh, people that you've interviewed. Yeah, that's like asking people, you know, which of their children are their favorite. <laughs> it's pretty hard, but. Um, there was one gentleman down in the community of Petersburg. His name was Earl Callahan, and uh, he's such a colorful gentleman. Uh, he was just immediately one of my favorites. And we, we kind of call him, refer to him as Earl the Pearl. But um, he, um, he was quite old at the time that I interviewed him. He was having a hard time getting around. Um, but when we started talking about hunting and trapping there in southeast Alaska, he was bouncing around in his chair and gesturing here and there and um, couldn't, couldn't – and, and he had all of these um, really uh, clever and humorous uh, sayings. Uh, he was talking about how he had gotten a job as a teenager uh, – you know, pretty responsible job. And he said, you know, what the hell did I know? I was just a punk and rolling kid. <laughs> Who would ever think of a phrase like that? And uh, another one, uh, he was talking about some guy that he didn't have a whole lot of respect for. He says, yeah, he didn't know shit from sweet honey. <laughs> and, and I mean, Earl could talk uh, for uh, days on end and he'd have like one of those phrases in almost every sentence. And, it was just a real pleasure to, to, to work with him. Oh, uh, and then there was a guy, um, uh, oh, man, now my, my mind just went blank. Um, he lived on a Kenai Peninsula, which is down in south-central Alaska, but he had been a commercial fisherman over in the Bering Strait uh, 
kind of in the place where Deadliest Catches um, is is filmed. And um, he talked very seriously about how dangerous it was to fish out there. And he had trapped on Kodiak Island, and he um, he had a bear, and you know the biggest bears in the world live on Kodiak, and he had a bear that had figured out, uh, the guy's name was Lyle Garner, it just came to me, um, the bear, you know, when, when Lyle checked his trap line, when he came across, uh, let's say he caught a beaver somewhere, rather than, you know, carrying that 10 or 12 miles all the way back to camp, he would skin it on the spot and just leave the carcass there. And this bear, which he referred to as an old man bear, had figured out that if he followed Earl around, or Lyle, excuse me, if he followed Lyle around, um, there would be a free meal for him, you know, several times a day. <laughs> and so um, he, Earl, or Lyle only figured this out one time when he had turned around and gone back to check something, you know, like maybe did I reset those snares or something like that, and the carcass was gone already like three minutes later. And he said they only came face-to-face -face one time over, you know, a decade or more, and um, he had left a hatchet behind, and he went back to check on that, and um, he came face-to-face -face there. And neither one of them, according to Lyle, neither one of them showed any fear or anger or any negative emotion. They just recognized, you know, the bear recognized who Lyle was, and Lyle recognized that this was his old man bear. And they just backed away from each other and went about their business. And, you know, they continued to have that symbiotic relationship there for many years. So <laughs> stories like that, I mean, you know, that's why Lyle was one of my favorites. Yeah, absolutely. I just listened to uh, the Ron Long interview the other day that one that, that he must have been quite a character very much so yeah in fact uh, we just recorded an interview with a fellow that trapped with him we recorded it uh, earlier the in october and uh ron's name came up several different times but yeah ron could definitely turn a colorful phrase as well um one of the things that comes up repeatedly was um ron was a fur buyer and of course, he always wanted to get your furs for the least possible money, and so one of his phrase was, phrases was foot rags. You know, you'd walk in with your string of Martin or Lynx or whatever it was and flop them on the counter, and he'd immediately say, well, what kind of foot rags did you bring me this time? <laughs> uh, di didn't he say that came from, uh, that phrase came from one of the, from when he was traveling to some of the villages, uh, some of the native yeah, villages I think there? Out of Fort Yukon, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Foot rags. Oh man. And he was he was from uh, Oklahoma, so he had quite a quite a different accent too, which which was kind of interesting to listen to. Yeah. Yeah. No, Ron was a character all the way around. How, whichever way you want to look at him, he was quite a guy. <laughs> and then, uh, of course, Dean Wilson. I think uh, most people who know Alaska trapping have heard the name Dean Wilson. He was, uh, boy, what an incredibly knowledgeable guy, uh, and and he had a lot of interesting things to say. Yeah, um, I <clears throat> I tend to even get a little emotional when I talk about Dean, but 
I referred to him as the patriarch. Yep. You know, he was just a very wise man, and he always knew the right thing to say. And um, he always had time for everybody. You know, he wasn't the guy that would give more time to the to the trapper that brought in 500 Martin than he, he would give to the guy that brought in his first links. You know, he, he was just a, a hell of a guy. Yeah, he came from from just a, a really small village and and poor. You know, grew up no money, uh, and uh, it it was really interesting to hear how much respect he had for for all the people he grew up around and and all the things that he learned and 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 you a lot of people probably wouldn't realize like how uh, how intelligent the, a lot of those people are that come out of places in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, absolutely right. You know, and and. Um... The, many of the people that, that Dean grew up around were, were Native, were Indian, and, um, you know, he had the utmost respect for those people, and it, he maintained it throughout his life. I always love to tell uh, a story. This is long, but uh, you can cut it out if need be. Um, one of my first years in the Trappers Association, I'd only been trapping for a couple of years. I went to a meeting and there was an issue to be <clears throat> to be discussed, and um, um, you know, being young and full of piss and vinegar, you know, I got up and voiced my opinion. And uh, as soon as I was done, Dean stood up and uh, said, "That is the wrong point of view." And you, and he pointed right at me, you, Randy Sarnke, should know this more than anyone. <laughs> and I just shrunk back into my seat i mean I, oh i was just mortified and um all i could think of as i drove home that night was you know geez i i pissed off god <laughs> do you remember what the issue was uh yeah it was whether or not to affiliate with a another organization a statewide organization oh, okay. and i thought we should and dean thought we shouldn't and so I got home and I stayed up and wrote him a letter basically apologizing. And I figured that would be better than calling him or visiting him at the shop. And um, because that way he could, you know, he would tear my head off probably is what I must have thought. <laughs> so I sent him this letter and didn't hear anything and didn't hear anything and didn't hear anything. And I thought, oh my God, it's worse than I thought. <laughs> and, um, so like six weeks later, I get this phone call, and he goes, Randy, this is Dean. I've been gone for a, a couple of months, and I just got back. I saw your letter. Hey, we disagreed on an issue, but gosh, I mean, you know, that ain't going to come between us. Uh, just, you know, you got your point of view. I got my point of view. I'm not mad at you. And, oh, man, I just melted all over again, you know. <laughs> yeah. Huh. Um, an, another one of the funny ones that, that I, I enjoyed was uh, uh, Richard Carroll from up in that Fort Yukon area talking talking in front of a live audience. Yep, yep. The Carroll family has a huge presence up there in Fort Yukon, and and Richard uh, is, is, you know, one of the leaders in the family and, and uh, just a wonderful guy. So and I, I I can't remember a lot of details uh, from the interview, but yeah, he was he he did a wonderful job and kept that. You know, when we have our our monthly meetings, we will have uh, oh seventy sixty five to eighty people show up. So he kept that room uh, you know at attention the whole night. 
<laughs> now another one that I'm I'm biased towards, uh, just just because I I really like that area. Uh, this was my favorite interview. I don't know if you remember much about uh, Fred Thomas. Oh, I certainly do. Um, you know, Fred has a huge reputation as being just an outstanding lynx trapper. And um, so, I mean, once this project was kind of underway and had gained a little bit of notoriety, you know, people said, well, you got to go interview Fred Thomas. I mean, you just got to. And um, I don't know if you could pick it up from the recording, but um, he was happy to participate. He welcomed us into his house. Um, you know, no problem there, but, um, the first 10 minutes of the interview were really awkward. Um, you know, I'd say, um, you know, I'd say, well, I'm sure you shot a bunch of moose over the years. Yep. (laughs) And any big ones? Yep. And he wasn't trying to be a jerk. I mean, it's just that he's a man of few words. I mean, there's no sense in, in um, you know, saying something with ten words if you can say it with nine. Yeah. And if you can say it with one, all the better. And um, But even with him, eventually, I mean, it took, like I said a moment ago, it took ten minutes or so, but he, fi- I finally hit on something that flipped that switch. And then he started. Going. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it it was kind of funny. One of the things you asked him, uh, I remember you said, "So you must have gone on some some long river trips, uh, you know, boat boat trips to up up river." Mm-hmm. And he was like, "Oh no, not really." And his trap line is like two hundred and fifty river miles up from Fort Yukon. <laughs> yeah, yep. You know, it's like asking, um, you know. Um, a professional quarterback, you know, you must have thrown some spectacular passes, and they go, yeah, I guess. <laughs> For them, they do it all the time, you know, so it's really nothing special. Yeah, it was funny. Uh, I, I actually listened to – Fred did an interview for uh, – the, the there was some project that the university was putting on uh, that was related to Arctic uh, climate change. And uh, they went into Fort Yukon and they they interviewed a bunch of the elders and and uh, old people that lived out on the land and were trying to ask what kind of patterns they'd seen and changes in the weather and everything and and uh, it was it, it was it was funny listening to Fred after having listening listened to your interview because he was they're like uh, so you must have noticed uh, you must have noticed things you know real changes with the weather he said no not really. Some years it's warmer, mm. some years it's colder. <laughs> yeah, kind of took wind out of their sails. Yeah, so, oh, that's good. I remember telling a story about when he was a boy, and I can't remember really what age, but I'm guessing probably early teens. And uh, he was on the trap line with his father, and they towed a sled, but I don't think they had a dog. I think that maybe towing the sled was Fred's job. And um, they had, you know, it was a long trap line. I don't know how long, but um, they would, every night, camp was just, you know, a um, a moose robe or a bear robe, and you just curled up under a spruce tree. Um, they didn't have a cabin. They didn't have tents. 
and um, you know it sounded like oftentimes they didn't even have a fire. They would just grab their sleeping robe and curl up under a spruce tree, and you know at temperatures down to 50 below. And um, there again, I mean, um, he didn't. He he told me he says as soon as he got his own trap line, he built a cabin. I mean, because he didn't want to sleep out in the cold anymore. But it wasn't like it was, in his mind, it wasn't life-threatening or anything. It was just uncomfortable. Comfort, yeah, right. And, and as I understand it, his father died when he, when he was still pretty young, and he kind of had to become sort of the leader of that, that family. Yeah, that part I don't remember. I'll have to take your word for that. Well, maybe I'm just making it up, too, but... <laughs> But I know he, uh, he, he kind of, he trapped, they trapped as a family. And I think he and, he and, uh, his brothers would, would all kind of have, they kind of have their own lines, but they'd, sometimes they'd trap together and sometimes they'd, they'd be separate, but it was a real, it was a real cooperative effort. Yeah. Yeah. Another story I remember from Fred is that, um, you know, the, um, the what, what what we refer to as the AC store or the NC store, and that would stand for Alaska Commercial or Northern Commercial, uh, which was basically the general store in the community. Um, you know, the manager would change hands. Uh, you know, sometimes often, sometimes they'd stay around for a long time. But you know, they they changed often enough in Fort Yukon that you know, they took on some new manager and the guy was looking through his back warehouse and he came across these barrels of traps and, you know, he didn't know anything about trapping and he thought it was just junk steel, you know, I mean, not literally, but he didn't think it really had much value. And so Fred went in there one day and, you know, here was this barrel of, I don't remember exactly what trap it was, but, you know, maybe like a number four house double long spring or something like that. Yep. And, and the guy was selling them for like $8 a dozen or something like that, you know, 75 cents a piece for these traps. Yeah, and what would that and trap go for today? Well, that's that was going to be my point. I mean, nowadays, you know, it would be $75 or $175 or something, I'm not sure. But, um, you know, he, he as I recall, he walked out with four dozen that day, and then he went back and got another four dozen or something like that just because they were so cheap. And he knew that they'd be a good lynx trap. He hadn't really used them before, but he knew they'd be good. And, uh, you know, he could he even smiled at that one, like he pulled one over on the storekeeper. <laughs> yeah, and I think I think somebody, uh, someone, someone ended up stealing those from him, too, at some point, huh? Yeah, I think that's right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. but pretty interesting. I, I wonder how many traps uh, out, out there in the bush have either been burned up in fires or or uh hung are still hanging on trees oh yeah i'm sure a lot of them have been burned in fires and you know your listeners probably understand what happens there but uh, you know if the fire burns hot enough the steel just loses its temper and you know the springs are you can close them with you know two fingers and and uh you know it's just a real shame but uh that's the nature of the beast yep absolutely you don't. That's the one thing you just have absolutely no control over out, out there. Is, is when Mother Nature decides to do something like that. You just uh, you just kind of have to sit back and figure out what you're going to do next. That's right. So so these uh, these oral history interviews, the books that you mentioned, um, 
boy, you put a lot of work into this stuff. Uh, but this is all this is all going towards uh, funding for the Alaska Trappers Association. Yeah, that's correct. For uh, the first two that we came out with, all the money goes to the ATA. The uh, the the last two, um, you know, the authors are supportive of ATA, but they wanted to make a buck too, and that's their right. And so. You know, we split uh, some of the money with them, and and uh, that works out just fine too. So, yeah, it's um, you know, like I said earlier, we we didn't make as much off of these books as we think, but uh, we think there's other benefits besides the cash. Oh, a- absolutely, absolutely. Um, so so you, people might wonder, well, why do you need any money? Uh, maybe you could go over some of the challenges uh, that uh, that Alaska trappers are facing, and and the work that you need to do to 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 uh, oppose the that a lot of that stuff yeah well um a lot of this has really developed in the last 10 years or so and i don't mean to imply that we're the only state that has faced some legal challenges because you know most of the states actually probably have but you know we just uh it, it was another area where we had to grow into um if if you would have said uh, 20 years ago that we'd be involved to the level we are now i think everybody would have just looked out of the side of their you know looked at you sideways and wondered what you were drinking but um um we have uh the 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 management system for hunting and trapping up here is um uh, uh there's a seven member panel appointed by the governor that's called the board of game and they make all the regulations for hunting and trapping and local governments don't have that authority uh, with the exception of uh, on property that they own of course you can do anything on the property you own but um, we've had uh, a small number three or four uh, communities around the state that decided that they needed to restrict trapping and uh, in one way or another in some cases there were reasons you know legitimate reasons for it in other cases there um, one in particular where somebody just said, I don't like the idea that there's a trap, you know, two miles from my house. I think that's that's too close. And um, so some of these local communities have enacted their own ordinances that restrict trapping. And we don't believe that you should be able to, you know, set a wolf trap next to the elementary school or in the post office parking lot or anything like that. But some of these communities have very large uh, boundaries um you know like what we consider to be the town central their boundaries extend out you know five ten miles beyond that and um so you know we advised them before they adopted these ordinances that you know you don't have the authority to do that that's limited to the state and they just went oh you guys just go away we're going to do what we're going to do and um after the second uh, time you know we just decided that we had to do something and so about two years ago we hired an attorney and filed suit against the city of valdez because they had restricted trapping in in their uh within their city limits and um um we just really felt we were doing the right thing uh, we asked the state to join us in that suit and because they're the really going to be the the beneficiary if we if we win and uh, they said that they had other things that were higher priority and they didn't have the time or the money to to join us and we were totally confident in winning um and it turned out we didn't win 
And so now we are we have filed an appeal, and um, that appeal will be held by heard by the um, the state supreme court here within the next year. And so you know your point about why do we need money? Well, there is the reason we need money. That's one of them anyway. And when we uh, the board of directors when we first were discussing whether or not to proceed with this lawsuit, you know one of our members uh, said it very plainly. He said. You know, if we don't have the uh, the interest and in, uh, to commit money to this, why does this organization even exist? This is what we should be doing. We should be defending trappers' rights around the state, and so there really shouldn't even be much debate. And the rest of the directors kind of looked at him and nodded and said, "Yep," yeah, it was a unanimous vote to proceed. So that one is still up in the air, undecided. Uh, but uh, once again, we're fully confident that we'll win on appeal. Yeah, was that that must was that a local judge that made that ruling? It was a judge from the city of LD, or who lives in the works for the state, <laughs> lives in the city of LD. Okay, so that's the, right. Yeah, there's you you uh, that seems to me that you won't have any trouble with that, but you never know. Um, but but the law, you know, the law's on your side there. Um, I, I like the idea that you're you guys are taking an aggressive approach because uh, the alternative to that is is to wait and end up in a situation like the state of New Mexico is in right now or a lot of other states down here in the lower 48 where uh, a, a lot of us have lost our trapping rights uh, and ability to trap uh, it, 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 and it I don't know if, if in some places, you know, that maybe is inevitable, but by taking an aggressive approach like that, you, you kind of, uh, are, I think you potentially can ward off a lot of the, those potential things from creeping in. Yeah, that entered our thoughts too. And, and I hope you're right because, um, you know, that would be good if we, you, you know, you fight the little fights and, and maybe avoid the big fights. Yeah. And of course, that the, way. Of course, the the uh, the underlying fight is just the fight of public opinion, and and of course that goes to to probably a lot of your educational efforts and uh, and efforts to get more people understanding what trapping is and why it's important. And there again, uh, you may have seen this on our website, but um, about oh I don't know six eight years ago, we had um, you know a pretty smart. Uh, social scientists come to one of our board meetings and advise us that we needed to initiate a social media campaign. And we kind of looked at each other and didn't really know what that phrase meant, to be <laughs> honest with. And maybe we're a bunch of dumb trappers, but, you know, maybe we were just being ahead of the game. We really didn't know what, what was being suggested, but if you haven't seen it, if you go to our website, which is alaskatrappers.org, there's a series of about, I don't know, 12 or 14 short videos that we recorded with um, people from different aspects of life here in Alaska. You know, there's a retired game warden, there's a businessman, there's a mother of four, there's a dog owner there's a logger there's a commercial fisherman and it just goes on and on and you know we don't come out and say you need to be a trapper everybody should be a trapper trapping is the greatest thing in the world it's way more subtle than that and uh if you haven't seen them i'd encourage you to go and, and see those and 
you know, the only downside to that project was there's really no way to measure how effective you are at conveying your message. You can count how many people watched it, but you don't know how many people's opinion you may have swayed. Sure. But that was a commitment that our board, again, made that we felt like this was something we had to do in a kind of a low-key way to win the the the, the the, the, we used to call the silent majority, you know, the people that don't necessarily love trapping, don't necessarily hate trapping, but we want them to be aware that there are positive aspects of it when issues arise, you know, either in the media or in the court that, you know, that they have a little bit of a soft spot in their heart for the trappers. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, uh, you know, the old time Alaska was everybody knew a trapper or was or had been a trapper at some point in their lives. But it uh, seems like the demographics are changing there, just like they're changing in a lot of other places. Oh, no question about it. You know, I live in Fairbanks, which um, if you include the surrounding area, you know, the people that are just outside the city limits and whatnot, you know, we're about 100,000 people. And, um, oh, yeah, I mean, um uh, the neighborhood that I live in, you know, pretty much everybody knows that I'm a trapper, but there's nobody else within, you know, 10 houses of me up and down the street that, that they're a trapper too. So yeah, it's, it's definitely changed a lot. Yeah. Um, I, matter of fact, I, I actually have a friend from Maine who just, uh, moved there a few weeks ago to Fairbanks and, uh, he's not a trapper, but he's a hunter and fisherman and, and his brother and I have trapped together and I have a feeling he's going to be wanting to trap here at some point. He's, he's going to, he's going to catch the bug. So for guys like that, uh, that, that either have just moved there or people who have that dream of, Oh, I want to go to Alaska and be a trapper. Uh, I, I know you've answered this probably a thousand times, but a chance to, to answer this maybe to, to, uh, several people at once or, or several, a uh, couple thousand people, maybe, um, what what advice would you give folks for for uh, getting started if that is their goal? Yeah, well, that is a tough question, but you know you're right. I've answered it many times, and it kind of depends on you know how serious the person is. If they're happy with a little three mile walking line like I am, um, I can find them a place like that. Uh, on the other hand, if they want, you know, a 100-mile snow machine line where they're going to catch 200 martin a year and catch uh, 100 lynx when the lynx are abundant and, you know, a half a dozen wolves every year and that sort of thing, well, good luck with that because anything on the road system that's even close to that has already been taken. And uh, the guy that's trapping it now isn't going to welcome you as a partner and so, you know, it's really hard to find something like that. If you want something like that, you have to go out. You have to go out to the bush. And that means flying. And that means either you buy a plane and fly yourself or you charter. And, um, you know, that may sound very daunting, but for an outdoorsman who wants to trap and fish and hunt in the best places, um, having access to an airplane is such a huge advantage that after you've had one for 10 years, you wonder, you know, why you even hesitated back at the beginning. 
And, uh, you know, planes can be expensive, but if you compare, if you put any value on the life experiences you have um, compared to the person that sits uh, in Fairbanks and watches the evening news every night, um, then your plane doesn't seem so expensive. And another way that I recommend, and I don't know how many people take this advice, but you know, there are a lot of remote lodges, you know, mostly fishing lodges, but there are remote hunting lodges, too. And um, most of the owners of those uh, head south to warmer climates in the winter, but they like to have somebody there for the winter as a caretaker. And if you have the skills, if you know a little bit of plumbing and a little bit of carpentry and a little bit of this and that, that you can make repairs when they're necessary, you're going to be in, you, you have a, a, an opportunity to find one of these winter caretaker jobs. And um, there'll be a snow machine there probably, and there might even be traps hanging in the shed. And, you know, that's another way, if you want that remote experience, you know, you can have it in spades in a very comfortable setting if you can find the right arrangement. Boy, that is an excellent idea that I hadn't thought of, the, the remote lodges. That is that, that could be a great opportunity for somebody. And once again, I mean, if, if you never knew which end of a hammer to grab onto, you're probably not the right person <laughs> yeah, for that. You have to be an asset for somebody to, to have that opportunity for sure. Yeah. Right. Uh, how do I convince my wife that a plane is safe? Uh, a small single engine? Uh, geez, I mean... Um, you know, I've, many friends of mine are pilots. I'm not, um, but many friends of mine are. And, um, you know, you, if, you, if you're the kind of guy that when you were 16 years old, you bought a hot rod and drove it 75 miles all over town, uh, you know, you're probably going to take risks as a, in a plane, too. But most everybody I know, you know, they realize the potential danger, and they're just super careful. And... Um, you know, in a 40-year flying career, um, you know, maybe one little accident or maybe none. So it's all a matter of the pilot and how, how careful you are. Yeah. Yeah, I, I actually, uh, I, I had a, a friend invite me out to, to his line, um, and I looked at the cost of a charter, and it was going to be about $1,500. So, so that's, uh, unless you're staying for several months, uh, that really, uh, it, it can be expensive. Well, yes, but there again, think of the experience you're going to have. I mean, um, you know, maybe I, I'm a single guy, and so I don't have to worry about buying clothes for kids and all that sort of thing, but you know, when I decided, like, after I'd been up here for a couple of years and, you know, had a bunch of people that I worked with and friends that were pilots, and I gave it a lot of thought, and I decided I wasn't going to get a plane, but I also, at the same time, I told myself, I will never decide not to go on a trip simply because I think it's too expensive. And I think I can honestly say I've held to that over all these 40 years that, you know, I've paid some pretty hefty charter fees at times, but it was, I had experiences that, you know, only a handful of people have ever had, and um, it was worth it, um, and, and uh, do it all over again. Yeah. So, 
uh, how do folks know if they're on someone's trap line or an area they're looking at, uh, it might be a trap line? Do you guys, does the ATA maintain a list of trap lines? We do not. Uh, we did that for the first uh, 10 or 15 years of the organization, but it, it became a real nightmare to update the maps every year and that sort of thing. And and then there were still people that would, um, you know, they looked at the maps uh, because they knew that Joe Blow, um, you know, brought in uh, 300 Martin that year. They looked at the maps to find out where he trapped, and then they went and trapped uh, in the valley right next to him. And, oh, yeah. You know, yeah. They used them in a way that they shouldn't have, and so we stopped doing that. But I always tell people, you know, we have one um, asset up here that um, allows you to make those determinations, and that's the snow. Um, you know, if you think you might want to trap in the um, in the Jeremiah Wood River Valley and, you know, you think you might want to trap there next year, well, go out in February or March and fly over that area and if you see trails that's number one pretty good indication if you can land and walk some of those trails and you see a lynx cubby or a martin pole set well you've answered your question i mean somebody's already trapping there and by state law um you know you might have your trap line all set up and i can come down and, and go on your trail and set traps right next to yours but that's the legal part of it. Um, we just don't condone that within the association. I mean, we preach over and over that you don't infringe on another man's property. I mean, he doesn't own it, but but uh, that's his trap line. He's been there. You find your own. And um, so, you know, you ask the question, how can you tell? You know, the trails in the snow that you can see from the air will tell you first. And then if you get on the trail and see any, any you know, obvious sets, that, that confirms it. So you look somewhere else. And I imagine that uh, some folks, for, from what I've heard, they'll give their line a rest for a year, especially Martin lines, if they trap yep. really hard one year. So just because you don't see any active trails um, doesn't mean that that's not somebody's line that they're planning on trapping the following year. That's right. You know, and if you get on a, uh, in an area like that where, you know, if, if, if this is me looking for a new line and you're the guy that's, you know, up in Smith Valley um, and you gave it a rest this winter, um, if I go through that, that valley, I'm going to see your trails and I'm going to see your Martin pole sets, even though the traps aren't set. You know, I see sign, you know, that if, uh, I recognize that somebody has been trapping there. And, um, you know, then we, uh, I may set it up or I may not, uh, but in any event, when you come and restate your claim, um, if I'm an honorable trapper, I back out. Yeah, it, it's pretty amazing that, that that kind of unwritten code of ethics, well, I guess it is written, because <laughs> um, you guys do have a code of ethics uh, on your website, um, but, but it, that kind of unwritten rule has been followed for so long. That's right. You know, it's uh, I take a little bit of pride in that, that people do respect it. Um, you know, you still hear stories that, you know, um, there are arguments, um, you know, there, you know, I can't tell you the last time I even heard of a fist fight, but I'm sure that that happens occasionally. You know, you used to hear years and years ago about gunfights, but I don't think that's happened in 50 years. But, 
you know, there are still conflicts where, you know, people both want to trap in one particular spot, but they generally work it out some way or another. And um, uh, uh, in, in that's that even that is very rare. Most people just, um, you know, the, the newcomer um, acknowledges the claim of the, the veteran who's been there and just backs out and finds another spot. Yeah. And of course, the low fur prices probably uh, probably have, have helped that a little bit. Yeah, yeah. In recent years, that's been a factor. What about the? Do you ever get guys that uh, have not trapped an area for like twenty five years, and they're like, "Oh, that's my trap line. You better stay out of there." Oh yeah, yeah. You hear that, and then it's up to the. Oh, I don't even know how to say it. You know, it, it's. I guess it it falls on the newcomer to learn the truth of the matter um you know was there was there a a a a good reason why it wasn't trapped for that long a time uh or were the people just being lazy and they really don't even intend to trap it in the future they just don't want you to trap it um you know you have to kind of do your due diligence there and try and figure that out and um I know people that have been confronted with those situations and they just persisted. You know, they, they said, yeah, I checked into that and he didn't really have a legitimate claim. So I went back and I know he doesn't like it, but he's not trapping there anymore. So somebody might as well do it. And that's going to be me. Yeah. Yeah. Quite a, quite, <laughs> quite a place, quite a place where, where there's, there's that much, uh, it's such a vast area and, uh, and, and to have opportunities, even even with the people that have all these established lines, that if you're willing to go far enough out, I mean, there's still land out there that isn't being trapped. Oh, yeah, very definitely. So. Well, Randy, I, I really appreciate this. This was a lot of fun. Um, I, I'm pretty well through my list of topics, but did you have anything else that we haven't covered that you want to talk about? Oh, I, I just had a story come to mind. Um, you know, I could go on all night. I love this just as much as everybody else does. But one story in particular, you know, the the first president of the Alaska Trappers Association was a gentleman by the name of Fabian Carey. And I never knew him. He was dead before I got here. But um, apparently a real Renaissance man. I mean, people say that, you know, he was just as comfortable on the, the uh, seat of a bulldozer as he was in the you know, the, the uh, balcony seat at a ballet, and, you know, he could talk to anybody from, you know, Joe on the corner stool in the bar to um, the governor of the state. And in any event, we have an award each year we call Trapper of the Year. I'm sure that every association has something like that. And it's called the Fabian Carey Trapper of the Year. And <clears throat> many years ago, I can't tell you exactly when, but it was awarded to uh, – a native gentleman who lives, uh, well, he's dead now, but he lived uh, west of Fairbanks here a couple hundred miles. His name was Sidney Huntington, yes. a well-respected well member of the community, uh, the trapping community. And um, so the plaque consists of, you know, a wooden plaque with your name and a couple of other things. And mounted right in the middle is what we all consider to be the best wolf trap that's ever been manufactured. It's called the Alaska Number no. Nine, and um, so one year it was awarded to Sydney, and that spring he was out at his camp 
and um, late at night, and he heard some wolves howl. And uh, he went, God darn, you know, I've got this one moose kill set up for, you know, with traps and snares. And just the other day, I put in another set over here. But, man, I've, all my traps are used up, and I don't know what to do about these wolves I hear howling. And the next day when he got up, he, got, he was looking at that plaque. And he said, ah, I think I could use that wolf trap. And so <laughs> took it off of the plaque, and it's welded so that, you know, it doesn't, it's welded open so it doesn't cause any He probably anybody. had a file. <laughs> oh, he, he broke the welds, <laughs> went out and set it, and he caught, caught a wolf with it. I've never and heard that story. Jeez. And so for most of the people in our organization, the first time they hear that story and they think of him taking that trap off of that plaque, they go, well, why did he? Ah, good for him. <laughs> you know, in other words, he wasn't going to let any formalities get in his way of doing, you know, him being a trapper. And Sidney was, was that kind of guy, as I understand it. Um, for folks who aren't familiar, the book Shadows on the Koyukuk uh, was, was actually narrated Sydney's story as told to Jim Reardon, who you interviewed, Jim, um, as part of your oral history project. And, uh, and Sydney and his brother Jimmy were both uh, really fascinating characters that, that grew up in the woods. And they have, boy, they, they both have, have quite the life stories. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. You know, I always say that, you know, it's hard enough to be a success at one thing in life. And Sydney was a very successful, um, you know, the, the term up here is subsistence hunter, a subsistence fisherman. In other words, you're hunting and fishing to gather the food to feed your family. And uh, that's commonly just known as subsistence hunting and fishing. And he was very successful at that, and very successful as a trapper. But he also, if you've read the book, which sounds like you have, you know that he built a fish processing business there yeah, on the river. In Galena, uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, it was so successful that, you know, some other people from, from town offered to buy it from him. So, like I say, it's hard enough to be a success at one thing in life, and he was a success in the Native world, but also in the white world. Yeah, and he was a long-time member of the Board of Game, I think. He did a lot of work uh you know, trying to, to help um, manage wildlife in his later years. That's very true, yep. Yeah. Um, one one thing that's probably missing uh, in, in Alaska trapping history is probably a Fabian Carey book. Yeah, well, that would be hard. Um, wow, I guess I'd never thought about that. Um, the person that would really be the one to do that um, – Fabian had a son whose name is Michael. Yeah, he's a writer and, for the Anchorage Daily News, isn't he? That's correct. And then in later years, he also uh, had uh, a program on public television. So, you know, a journalist, let's call him that. And, and um, you know, he would be the one that would be in the best position to do it. Um, I'm in touch with him periodically. Maybe I'll drop that suggestion and see how he how he responds. Yeah. I've read, I read a thing or two that, uh, you know, mentioning, well, uh, 
I guess the probably the one that had had a lot on Fabian was Ray Trembley's book. Um, yep. He trapped in that Lake Minchumina area, and and uh, he had he had quite a few Fabian stories there. Just I just uh, read enough to to uh, understand what you're what you're saying when you you say he was a, a Renaissance man and quite a character. Yep. Yeah. He uh, and you know he. Um, he had his own plane and flew out to Minchumna, which for your listeners, I mean, we're talking, um, well, I'm going to have to guess here, but 250, 300 miles. And um, um, this is back when not very many people were doing that. Um, there were people that would fly, you know, get chartered out and stay the whole season. But Fabian had his own plane and, you know, used it to go back and forth and, um you know, more of the style that, you know, a lot of people use today. And uh, so, yeah, he was, and, and like I, I, I say, I mean, there were a lot of a lot of guys that knew him that say that, you know, he would uh, walk into uh, the legislative halls down in Juneau and uh, hold forth. Uh, you'd swear he was a, um, you know, a trained uh, orator. <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh a day later he'd be out on the trap line mushing his dogs so yeah. pretty incredible a lot of a lot of history there a lot of uh boy a lot of people with a lot of stories yep so all right well th- thanks randy uh this this was fun and and uh i think we got enough uh material that we probably need to do this again sometime oh yeah i'd love to i mean you can tell how uh, hard it is to get me talking <laughs> oh that was fun i hope you guys enjoyed it as much as i did i just love talking about old timers and alaska trapping and wilderness stuff and and going through all that old history it's great stuff and talking about what other trappers in other states are doing uh, today to preserve their heritage and to keep doing what they're doing it's good stuff so support the alaska trappers association Uh, i am a member uh, if you have the opportunity to, if you have the financial well-being and you'd like to, to support another association, I think it's a really good one to support. You get a really cool uh, magazine and calendar. And uh, check those oral histories out, alaskatrappers.org, and, and check out the books. Um, hopefully we will have uh, Marty Majorato on in the future to discuss uh, his new book. It's, it's a really good book, uh, well worth the read. And finally, time for the Cotsbro's message of the week. Cotsbro's has brand new and improved aluminum wire screen pan covers. Check them out. Machine stamp, nice clean cut edges, and uh, great for uh, getting going on your fox and coyote trap line. So check them out, Cotsbro's.com. Thank you, Cotsbro's, for continuing to support the podcast. And check out uh, my store, trappingtodaystore.com. Pick up some of your trapping lure uh, shirts and books. Uh, and uh, how about the Trapping Today coffee mugs? It's getting close to holiday season. I think those would make some great gifts. So uh, get on there, trappingtodaystore.com. Guys, thanks so much for your support. I hope you're out on the trap line if your season is open and hope that you are having fun and having some success. Until next time, keep on talking trapping, keep on thinking trapping. We'll catch you on the next episode.